and welcome to the bonus episode. When we talked about the history of the English language, I had an inkling that it would take a while. There's so many layers to this topic. So this bonus episode is a bit of a mishmash. I took all the extra bits that didn't necessarily fit in the historical timeline and put them all together. So there's definitions and just random questions that I might have had during our talk. Thank you so much for listening. took your class. (laughs) I really enjoyed learning about the influences, for example, from the Romans, like a specific Mm -hmm. example that you gave or specific examples from the Norse or a specific example from the Normans. Mm -hmm. You had sort of how the language changed a little bit. Do you mind just running through a few different examples? Sure. And well, the neat thing is sometimes you get two different equivalent forms, both surviving, but being used for different things. So for instance, the word shirt in modern English, comes from Old English, that survived all the way from Old English. A particular sound shift happened during the Old English period that changed the way that word was pronounced uh, in England, but not in all the other Germanic dialects. It only happened in the varieties of Germanic languages spoken in England. So it was originally an SK sound. Uh, And that SK sound, what happened is it's called palatalization. So that K kind of moved a bit in the mouth to have more of a SH sound. Uh, And so what was originally skirt became shirt. However, Old Norse preserved the original form, the SK sound. So skirt is the same word as shirt, but it got reborrowed into English uh, because of those Viking invasions. And both words survived to modern English. So now we have two articles of clothing that were originally the same word, shirt and skirt, and they just came to be used for slightly different parts of the body, basically. Shirt was kind of more the upper half of the body, the skirt was kind of more the lower half of the body, but it was the same, it just refers to an article of clothing. Mm -hmm. So that shows one particular sound change that happened. The other thing that you can can notice in terms of that is, um, I said before that Anglo-Norman French was the first dialect to come into to England, uh, but later on there was more influence from other French varieties, particularly Parisian French, because of sort of political importance. And so you can see often two different forms of uh, a word getting borrowed twice at two different points that show this difference. So for instance, guarantee and warranty were originally the same word. It was originally that G sound, but it became a W sound. Um, And so both survived. Both were borrowed at two different times into English. You can see that as well with um, guard and warden, the same G, W correspondence. Because in French, the words in English that tend to start with W tend to be a G word. Like William is Guillaume and War is Gare and on and on and on. People who learn either language seem to notice that difference, that Mm -hmm. change. Yeah. So English kind of borrowed that G and made it into something else. Mm -hmm. Well, it changed in French first. So it changed in Norman French. So we have the Norman version and the Parisian French version. We have both versions. So that that sound change is something that happened, uh, already existed between Norman French and other varieties of French. Interesting. So they use the W sound. Mm -hmm. Yep. Hmm. I didn't know that. And there are other words like um, cattle and chattel are the same word originally. But again, one 
in one variety of French, it became a ch sound, whereas the original k sound was preserved in another variety. And so we get both forms in English because it was borrowed twice. So other things that happen are, are sense shifts. Uh, we have we preserve a lot of words from Old English that have kind of different meanings now. So meat originally meant food. It was a more general word for food, and then it came to be you know, used to refer specifically to one particular food, the flesh of animals. Or the word starve originally meant just to die, but it narrowed in its sense to mean to die through hunger. And then the pork and... And the pork and pig, yeah. So that's another interesting beef and cow, right? One refers to the animal, one refers to the meat from that animal. Uh, so what's going on there is it's showing the sort of sociopolitical hierarchies that existed during the sort of Norman period of England because the rich upper class people would eat the meat. So the meat word comes from Norman French, whereas the animal word is the Old English word because it's the lower class English speakers who are uh, tending the animals. So maybe as a small aside, newscasters tend to have a very specific type of accent. It's almost like in old films, you know, they would speak a very distinct way. Do you have anything to say about sort of those situations? Yeah, that's that's called received pronunciation. So it's a particular pronunciation of British English that, again, centers from the kind of London accent, though it's not exactly, I mean, there's actually a lot of different accents in London itself. London accent in the current day is not one dialect. There's lots of different varieties of English in London. It's a very rich diverse place. So, I mean, you know, the, for instance, there's Cockney uh, English, which is spoken in London and goes, you know, way back. I mean, certainly even earlier than Dickens, who represents Cockney dialect in his books. Um, but it's the sort of pronunciation of the upper class Londoners that is also referred to as BBC English because it became the dialect that you had to use if you were going to be on originally BBC Radio and then eventually BBC Television. If you were going to, you know, report the news or whatever, that was the accent you had to use. Even if you came from another part of uh, Britain, you would learn to speak this received pronunciation for professional purposes. And so people would train to do that, actors. And we see that in different countries. So in Canada, we have our own received pronunciation in United States. Yeah, so, you know, might refer to standard American English, which is the dialect in the United States that's considered the so-called neutral dialect. And so those, not too heavily Southern or heavily yeah. Northern or... Yeah. And it's basically an artificial dialect in a lot of ways in terms of standard American English. It doesn't really... I mean, you can say it's a bit more Northern than Southern because you have that North-South divide, but really it's a sort of artificial pronunciation in a lot of ways. It's not a specific dialect. It's not a specific dialect. It's an artificial dialect that everyone kind of uses, um, even if they didn't grow up speaking that way. So talking about artificial then, let's jump to this topic because uh, this is quite interesting too. What's the difference between pidgin and creole and constructed languages? And there's a whole right. section that in linguistics that's quite interesting that some people don't even realize. So a pidgin is what happens when you have two groups interacting with each other, often for trade purposes or something like that, that speak two different languages. And so they develop this sort of intermediary language that borrows elements from both to some extent. Usually it's based on one of the languages more than the other when there's a power imbalance. So if you have a more powerful country trading with a less powerful country, the less powerful country, uh, their language would be called the substrate 
and the more powerful language would be the, the superstrate. What would happen is you would get a lot of vocabulary from the substrate language, but you would get the sort of structure uh, from the grammar, from the more powerful language, uh, and that would be a pidgin. Now, it's very limited. It doesn't have a full vocabulary. Um, it's not an actual language. It's, it's not an actual language. Temporary? No one speaks it. Yeah, no one speaks it as a, a first language. Mm -hmm. It only is used in those interactions. Um, but over time, sometimes a pidgin can become a first language. And so as soon as you have people starting to learn this pidgin as a first language, yeah. like their children are learning it, then it's no longer a pidgin because it immediately develops a fully comprehensive grammar and a full vocabulary, because people do that. They, they can't just speak a limited language, they have to speak a full rich language. And so at that point, the pidgin transforms into what's called a creole. And the creole is gathering more words to make the language fuller? Yeah, yeah. So it has as full a vocabulary as any language, uh, any non-blended form of a language. Uh, it has a full set of grammatical rules. It's a full language on par with any other language in the world. And we call that a creole because it grew out of a pigeon, or in any case, it is now spoken as a first language. So how long does that take to become an actual language in, in terms Basically of... in one generation. Creole is a language. That's the yeah. thing, right? Um, <laughs> We shouldn't use the word Creole in any kind of um, disparaging way because it implies that it's somehow yes. a defective language or impure language and doesn't have all of the elements of a real language, so to speak. Uh, and that's not true because the human brain doesn't work that way. People speak languages. If those elements aren't there, they will develop. And so... Creole is, by any definition, a full language. So whether you call it a language or Creole, in terms of its status as a full language, it makes no difference. So within that first generation of people adopting that pidgin, that yeah. was not a language, not a specific mm -hmm. language. That then, now that this Creole is now its own language. Its own language, yeah. A Creole is, by definition, a language. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> and constructed languages... Yeah, this has become quite popular to, and, and actually it goes way back, to produce an artificial language that no one has spoken and you build it from the ground up as a conscious thing to do uh, for a number of different purposes that you might have to do it. Um, so, for instance, Esperanto was a created language, a constructed language that was invented to be a sort of neutral language that many people who spoke different languages could all use. Um, What's it based off of? It's based off of European languages. So it's not really universal is the problem. I mean, it was, I suppose, at the time of its creation, it was a bit more universal in that it was being used for particularly European speakers. Um, but certainly, you know, as the world became bigger, in a sense, um, it's not really a fully uh, universal. universal language. It yeah. doesn't draw from, you know, Asian languages or African languages. And now or, it has its own culture and its own set. But still people, yeah, yeah. people use it. And um, I mean, mostly it's kind of doesn't really have an official purpose, but it's so it's mostly sort of enthusiasts who believe in this ideal of a, a universal language that... So it's a modern enough invention. It's a fairly modern invention, yeah. And then one of my favorite topics, I guess, is Tolkien and what he did with constructed yeah. languages. Yeah, so that's the other reason you might construct a language is for artistic purposes. Um, as part of a work of fiction, say, in the case of Tolkien, he had all these different 
uh, groups in his novels that would be speaking different languages, and so he created a language for each. Now he's to some extent drawing on actual languages. In I mean, they're not. He's not just using pre-existing languages, but he bases certain elements of his created languages on real languages like Welsh uh, or Old English or Old Norse. So yeah. And then we see Tolkien was quite a while ago. And now these days we have TV series like The 100 or maybe Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. And movies. Star Trek. Star Trek. Yeah, that would have been before. A little bit before. Um, Star Wars. Yeah. Well, the Star Wars languages, they don't create real languages, right? They're gibberish, basically. They're made to sound kind of interesting, but they have no meaning. Um, Whereas other series... Other series create actual languages uh, that have actual meaning and is consistent in the show or in the book or whatever. So Game of Thrones, uh, they actually ran a contest uh, to create languages and various people entered this contest and one of them won and has been producing all of the, the different languages for the TV show. In Star Trek, something similar happened with Klingon. They invented, you know, the Klingon language. You can And it's on Duolingo. <laughs> yeah, you can now learn it on Duolingo. Yeah. And it's a consistent language that was constructed and it was by taught an as a first language mm-hmm. for the first time. I've heard claims of this, yeah. and I don't know... There was an interview I saw ah. yeah, yeah, with the dad. Okay. So I don't know how far they went with it, I but think if he I did recall, teach it. Yes, and I think if I recall correctly, what he did was he only spoke Klingon to the child, whereas uh, his wife spoke an actual real language to the child. So the child wasn't deficient in a real language. They didn't only speak Klingon. But he's the first one to learn Klingon, to, to as, learn a Klingon as a primary language. Primary language. Yeah. yeah. So that's very <laughs> that's very different. I wonder about the ethics of these things sometimes, but Well, I mean, it's a language. It's a language, not a language many people speak, but uh... <laughs> Well, you know, there's those languages that people say are dying out or whatnot and you mm-hmm. have people who still speak yep. them. So yep. it's never lost if somebody's speaking it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and indeed, you know, the very important work being done in language revitalization and preservation, um, you know, to try and, because with a lot of these languages, you have older generations still speaking it, but the younger generations aren't learning it, and that's when it's a critical situation because it can disappear very quickly. I'm thinking specifically about, like, Faroese, how it almost yeah. died out, mm-hmm. but there was a big movement to bring it back through songs. Yeah. I remember uh, as a graduate student once, one of my professors lent me a Faroese uh, grammar, and so I spent a bit of time trying to learn it. (laughs) And it's just interesting how it's taken up again, and so interesting. 